The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Have you ever thought that maybe the ethics underlying veganism, animal rights, may go deeper? That there may be something systemic, something large and grand and discoverable that maybe we don't know about yet. Well, someone knows about it, and she's someone you already know and love, my guest on today's program, Dr. Melanie Joy. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Podcast, and I am absolutely thrilled to pieces that you are spending this hour with us today. We are going to get into some areas that do go beyond what we usually think about when we're thinking about uh, the choice of vegan living, when we think about rights for all beings, and even ideas of ahimsa and nonviolence. Dr. Melanie Joy, PhD, always thinks outside the box. That's why she gave us the concept of carnism. That's why she has been, since her entry onto the scene of the animal rights movement, such a pioneer and such a valued teacher. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Joy, and I don't think that's going to be many, let me give you a little background. She is a Harvard-educated psychologist, international speaker, organizational consultant, and relationship coach. She's the author of five books, including the award-winning Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, Beyond Beliefs, A Guide to Improving Relationships and Communications for Vegans, Vegetarians, and Meat Eaters, and her new book, Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. Dr. Joy has given presentations and vegan advocacy trainings on six continents, and her work has been featured in major media outlets around the world. She is the eighth recipient of the Ahimsa Award, previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela for her work on global nonviolence. 
Dr. Joy is also the founding president of Beyond Carnism, co-director of the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy, and co-founder of ProVeg International. Welcome, Melanie Joy. Oh, well, thank you, Victoria. It's always such a, a pleasure and really an honor to talk to you. Well, obviously you too. You know I do this Main Street Vegan Academy program that trains vegan coaches, and um, your book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, is required reading. Nobody can come and train as a coach unless they have read that book and half a dozen others that I consider seminal. And so during the course, and we just finished one, people are always talking about, they'll bring you up. Well, Melanie Joy says, <laughs> and I, I love it that you plant seeds and then people can, can water those seeds in their own consciousness and grow more ideas and questions and answers. It's wonderful, wonderful work that you do. Okay. So, let, yeah, let's start with a little history because I know veganism is growing every day and there are people listening to this program who were probably eating meat back when that first book uh, was published. So just give us a little background on you and the early stuff, and then we're going to move into Powerarchy. Yeah, well, it really was the earlier stuff that led me to eventually write Powerarchy, actually. I mean, there were, of course, a number of key events in my life that eventually led me to this particular work. But um, the one that's probably most relevant that a lot of, you know, the listeners are familiar with is something that happened to me 30 years ago. It was back in 1989. Um, I ended up eating a, a hamburger that had been contaminated with Campylobacter, and I wound up hospitalized. Um, um, on intravenous antibiotics, so I was really sick. And after that experience, um, that was really a catalyzing experience in my life because I just stopped eating meat and eggs and then dairy came shortly thereafter. Um, and during that time, I wasn't, I sort of like became a vegetarian by accident and a vegan. Um, and I was learning, so I, I, to my knowledge, I wasn't like driven by some sort of, you know, ethical motivation, although I think that was actually much deeper in me. But I, I started learning about my new diet and how to cook for myself. And of course, that led me to information about animal agriculture. And what I learned shocked and horrified me. Um, but what shocked me in some ways even more than what I realized was going on in the world was that nobody I talked to about this was willing to hear what I had to say. You know, the response was always something like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, you crazy vegan hippie propagandist or, you know, whatever. And this was from, you know, rational people and, and compassionate people, just like I had been, um, you know, when I had been eating animals. And so... I became very curious about the psychology. You know, why is it that people who care about animals, care about their well-being, um, care about the world, nevertheless shut out information that actually would help them to act on that caring? And so that motivated me eventually to do my doctorate um, in psychology. And I studied broadly the psychology of violence and nonviolence. And then more specifically for my dissertation, my thesis, um, the psychology of eating animals. And, and it was this dissertation research that led me to the discovery of what I came to call carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. Um, so I, I really was like looking at this system of carnism and looked at how I really was deconstructing it. You know, how does it keep itself intact? 
Um, you know, what is the carnistic mentality? What is this mentality that causes rational, caring people to engage in irrational, um, uncaring practices without even realizing what they're doing? And what I realized was that I actually ended up with sort of a blueprint for understanding oppression, oppressive systems, and the oppressive mentality in general. Um, you know, I was, I had this sort of a blueprint for how all different types of systems of oppression are structured, you know, sexism, racism, speciesism, classism, and, and so forth. Um, and I became motivated years later, you know, I stayed focused on carnism because I really wanted to kind of promote this idea, get this idea out into the world. Um, but after being in the movement for a long time, it's probably Why We Love Dogs was published a decade ago and my research came before that. Um, you know, I started to notice, witness the same dynamics among many vegans, not all vegans, of course, but many vegans that I had witnessed among my friends and family after I became vegan. Um, um, so there were, you know, vegans who would really resist examining their male privilege or their class privilege or their white privilege, even as they were actively working to raise awareness of human privilege. And this was very similar to me, the way of the way, you know, my friends and family would defend their carnistic privilege, you know, their right to eat animals. Um, even though some of these people were involved in social justice movements, um, challenging white privilege and class privilege, for, for example. And so I realized, you know, I was struck by how often people would step outside of one ism, like sexism or spe speciesism, only to remain mired in so many others. And then to actively defend their right to stay stuck in these isms without realizing what they were doing. Um, and I also noticed how some of these counter systems to oppressive systems, you know, systems like veganism or feminism that are actually created uh, to challenge the oppressive dominant systems of speciesism, of sexism or patriarchy, for example. These counter, system acts, counter systems actually also can start becoming these like mini like oppressive systems themselves, like so many advocates for progressive change often start using the very same tactics of the people and the systems they're working to transform. We So often those of us with the best of intentions start working, uh, start becoming the very thing we're trying to transform. So, so this is what really led me to look deeper and broader, you know, what lies beyond carnism? You know, what is it? My question was, what is, what is the meta system of oppression? You know, if carnism is like a spoke on a wheel of oppress oppressions, you know, and sexism and racism and other isms are spokes on this wheel, what is that hub? What is the overarching system that all of these other systems stem from? What is the deeper psychology? And so I would assume that that is powerarchy, and you're going to tell us what that is. Yes, I mean, that's, that is the system that I came eventually to identify um, as powerarchy. And so, I mean, writing my book on powerarchy, to be honest, it was a massive undertaking. Um, there was just, there's a lot sort of <laughs> to unpack and explaining what it is, but, and it's, it's a challenge, but I'll give an answer to like, you know, as succinct a definition as I can, and then we can continue to unpack this, I'm sure, throughout our conversation. Um, 
Powerarchy is essentially the belief system that conditions us to see certain individuals or groups as more worthy of moral consideration than others. That means of more worthy as more worthy of being treated with integrity or respect, being treated with compassion and justice. Um, it's powerarchy is a non-relational system meaning that it causes us to act in ways that violate our integrity, that act against our core moral values of compassion and justice, and therefore harm the dignity of others. In other words, we, we treat them as though they have less value, less intrinsic worth. So we end up feeling disconnected or becoming disconnected um, from one another. And powerarchy exists across all three relational dimensions, right? So uh, a powerarchy can be a system of oppression. Powerarchy exists on the broadest, you know, societal or collective dimension. So a powerarchy can be a system of oppression. So sexism is a powerarchy. Carnism is a powerarchy. Um, powerarchy also exists on the interpersonal dimension between individuals. So a powerarchy can be, for example, an abusive relationship or a dysfunctional work culture. And we can also practice power or exercise powerarchy, the same mentality, the same you know, set of attitudes and behaviors in how we relate to ourselves. We can treat ourselves with compassion, you know, or we can treat ourselves in a way that's powerful, that harms us and disconnects us from ourselves. So for somebody who's listening, who's like, oh my goodness, I just stopped eating cheese. What am I supposed to do with my life now? Bring it down to the practical for this moment. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really important to look at, um, you know, if we, if we want to transform oppression, we want to transform abuse, if we want to be a part of this positive change, you know, in the world. Um, well, number one, we, we need to be really compassionate with ourselves, you know, because we have been born into the dominant culture that we've been born into, the norm, the social norm is powerarchy, essentially. You know, we are all conditioned to think and act in ways that are ultimately against what we really want, which is to create meaningful connections with others. You know, we're, we're often conditioned, for example, to, um, you know, put others down in order to prop ourselves up, our sense of, you know, worth up, to take power from others in order for us to feel more powerful. And ultimately, these ways of behaving, these non-relational ways of behaving that create disconnections, that cause us to feel disconnected from one another. Um, they're really counter to what we all ultimately want and seek. I mean, research has shown that we do, we are hardwired to seek meaningful connection and to avoid the pain of disconnection. So we need to appreciate that we've been born into this way of being that is, it's it's dysfunctional. The norm of our, of our world, many places in the world, is relationally dysfunctional. And so we have to be compassionate with ourselves and recognize that... Um, you know, on a practical level, we can only do so much. And, you know, if we think of powerarchies, let's take carnism as one example, you know, the powerarchy that conditions us to eat certain animals on a spectrum. You know, either you're like really strong on the spectrum, you're eating animals like carnistic products all the time, every meal, or you're on the other end and you're vegan. You know, if we think of this on a spectrum, where we fall on that spectrum is less important than 
than the direction we're heading in. Um, meaning that committing to developing our awareness, there are ways we can do this, and I'll talk about this later, you know, um, but committing to developing our awareness. So we learn about powerarchy in general. You know, what is this? How does it specifically, how does it affect the way that we think and act? Um, committing to uh, bringing more integrity into our behaviors. Um, you know, it helps us move along the spectrum in the right direction. So, you know, when it comes to veganism, for example, I always I always suggest that people not think about the issues in black terms of black and white, not like, you know, you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem, but, you know, rather think about how you can be an ally to positive social change, to the transformation of carnism. Just be as vegan as possible. Continue to learn and expand your awareness around veganism and carnism, what this all means, and continue. You know, each meal you sit down at, ask yourself, how vegan can I make this meal? How vegan can I make this meal? It's really about just trying to pause and think about, you know, bringing integrity, integrity, the integration of, of core moral values, in particular, compassion and justice, which is fairness. It's the integration of these core moral values in our behaviors. So if we can just pause and say, huh, you know, I'm about to post something on social media, a comment, but you just pause. Does that reflect the kind of integrity I want to bring in my life? We build some space in our lives to pause and ask ourselves this question, we give ourselves the opportunity to think more deeply about our attitudes and behaviors and to shift them, you know, when we're in a position to do so. And, and that is the process of moving along the spectrum. This is so fascinating, Melanie. And I love when you talked about the pausing with social media. I have often said that if I were to get a tattoo, highly unlikely, because I can get very upset about a bad haircut. But anyway, if I were to get a tattoo, it would be uh, an abbreviation of the quotation from Bill W., who was the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, nothing pays as handsomely as restraint of tongue and pen. And mm -hmm. I thought if I had restraint of tongue and pen tattooed on the inside of my right wrist, then whenever I was about to press send, I could just twist the wrist and decide not to. So <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that. So you also said, um, how can we make this next meal vegan? But I want to talk about vegan as a definition and what it is in light of powerarchy. So originally, you know, you were vegan if you didn't eat anything that came from an animal. But now we talk about things like palm oil, which affects the planet, affects the orangutans. And, and we talk about other things that have other far-reaching consequences. How do you define veganism in light of powerarchy? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, the way that I describe veganism in, in my book in Powerarchy is as a counter system to carnism. Um, so it's a system that was constructed around um, practicing the opposite of powerarchy. So powerarchy is a system that's organized around exercising power over others. You know, as as its name suggests, you know, powerarchy is, is um, power over. So. 
When we exercise power over others, that means we take others' power or their sense of self-worth in order to prop ourselves up. It's like a zero-sum game that we're playing. Um, the opposite of power over is a system called power, referred to or a model of power referred to as power with. That means that we feel more powerful and worthy ourselves when we empower the whole, when we help others to feel more worthy and more powerful themselves, essentially. I'm kind of simplifying, but that's basically it. So, so when we exercise or when we practice powerarchy, basically what we're doing is we're engaging in non-relational behaviors. Now, the definition that I use for non-relational behaviors, you know, these are relationally dysfunctional behaviors. Um, I mean, if you think about any problematic relationships in your life, you can see that they basically can be boiled down to a set of behaviors that reflects hierarchy. Non-relational behaviors are behaviors that violate integrity. Right. So when we interact with somebody, and we don't treat them in a way that reflects justice or fairness and compassion. That's violating integrity. So behaviors that violate integrity and harm dignity, meaning they communicate that the other is not as worthy as we are on a core level, if that makes sense. And these behaviors ultimately end up creating disconnection between us. So if you think about a relationship you've had in your life or an encounter you've had with a person, um, you know, chances are when they're not interacting with you in a way that is reflecting a sense that they care for you or they care about what your well-being and they want to be fair to you. When they're not treating you in a way that you experience as respectful, you feel disconnected from them and probably defensive in their presence. Power, uh, the opposite of powerarchy, you know, is what I call systems. They're systems of integrity. Um, and these systems are organized around the opposite. They are, they are relational systems. They are made up of pro-relational or healthy relational behaviors, which is practicing integrity, honor, honoring dignity, and therefore creating more meaningful connection. How does this work in the real world when you have two people who both believe that they are honoring integri integrity, seeking to foster connection, but they see how to proceed in vastly different ways? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm, I'll come back to that in a minute because I, I want to add one other point. Um, you know, when we're talking about systems like social systems or like systems such as carnism and veganism, which your, your question was um, referring to, powerarchies are systems that are constructed to maintain and often grow an unjust power imbalance within them. So, for example, we can see that, you know, in white supremacy, there's, a, 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 you know, the power of white supremacy or racism, there's a power imbalance between white people and people of color. In the power of patriarchy, you can see there's a power imbalance between, you know, men and women and people of other genders. In a power that is just a relationship of two people, um, the person who is controlling or abusive has more power than the person who um, is being controlled or being abused. And the whole system is stru structured to maintain that power imbalance. Whereas counter systems such as veganism, right, are, are structured to mitigate or offset, eliminate that unjust power imbalance. And I say an unjust power imbalance because some power imbalances are not unjust, like the, the power imbalance between a parent and a child. 
So what the vegan, you know, counter system seeks to do is to mitigate the power imbalance between humans, in this case, human consumers and farmed animals, right? Farmed animals have zero power and human consumers, humans actually have all of the power. So, so that's one key difference. Um, and you asked the question of, um, you know, whether when you're in a relationship, you said, I think, and people both think that they're practicing integrity, but they're hurting each other. Was that the, the way? No, I'm, I'm thinking about more in, in business. And, and you've got two people who are both honest, who both really want a positive uh, end for, for something that they're involved with but they just see how to get there in vastly different ways. How, how does one navigate a situation like that in this more positive new framework? Well, it's, so it's really, um, it, communication is the primary way that we relate, essentially. You know, we're relating every minute of every day to ourselves and or to others. And communication is the primary way we relate. So one way, one of the best ways or most impactful ways that we can change the way that we relate is by changing the way that we communicate. Um, learning the principles of effective communication, I think, is one of the, if not the most important things, one of the most important things any of us can do. Um, and most of us actually have not learned these skills. And so when we have a difference of opinion, we end up fighting with, the, fighting with each other and we end up with, you know, very naturally, or I shouldn't say natural, it's not hardwired, but our normal default when we have a difference of opinion is to try to prove that the other person is wrong. Um, or to, you know, win an argument or a debate that we've gotten into. Um, and so, and this causes a lot of problems. In a model that's a healthier communicative or a healthy, healthier relational model, when we're communicating, our, our goal is not, not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong, or to win, which means to make the other person lose. Our goal is mutual understanding. Our goal is mutual understanding and our goal is to come to, ideally to come to an agreement where each of our needs can be met enough. Um, sometimes this means that a relationship actually has to end because people can't get their needs met and be in a relationship. Um, but even that can be done in a way that's really constructive and healthful. So, you know, so often, as soon as we start communicating about a difference of opinion or any kind of a difference, you know, which is what, what you were referring to, we start focusing on the content of what we're talking about. The content is what we're communicating about. You know, it could be anything from, you know, how long a meeting should run to whether to allow animal products to be in the house or not. Um, so the content is the what. The process is how we are communicating. And the process actually matters more. If you think about a conversation, for example, that you've had like a month ago or six months ago or a year ago, it's possible you've forgotten the entire content, but you probably still remember how you felt in that conversation. The process, the how, determines to a large degree how we feel in a communication or a conversation. And when our process is healthy, meaning that it reflects integrity, mutual caring, um, and honors dignity. And let's creates stop, Melanie, let's stop with dignity because we have a good old patriarchal hard stop coming right now. And we'll be back after these messages.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. If you're a new listener and don't know what's going on in the world of Main Street Vegan, I cordially invite you to visit our website, MainStreetVegan.net. And if you just click on the thing that says, I want to be a Main Street Vegan, uh, you can be a subscriber to our blog and occasional newsletters. You can also see on the site some of the wonderful things that we have going on. We're involved with filmmaker Thomas Jackson and his beautiful film, A Prayer for Compassion. And we also have Main Street Vegan Academy, which trains vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. So if you want to take your commitment and your activism to the professional level, do check us out there. I'd love to hear from you. Also, a shout out to our sponsor. These are our friends at alpineorganics.co. These are vegans who make supplements, only two of them, because you don't need a whole lot, for vegans. So you know Matt Frazier, the meat-free athlete, and Dr. Pamela Ferguson, a vegan dietitian. So they got together with some other smart people and came up with a product called Complement, which is a really convenient spray for getting vitamin B12 and D3 and the fully formed omega-3 fatty acids. And then they teamed up with Dr. Joel Kahn, who said, you know, if people want to really be sure they're absolutely getting everything, like some of these important but hard-to-get nutrients, including zinc and vitamin K2, we can come up with Complement Plus, which is the second product, and that's more of a multi, but specifically designed for people who eat plant-exclusive diets. So if you're interested in learning more, do check out alpineorganics.co, and if you choose to make a purchase of um, the original um, Complement, uh, just put Main Street Vegan in caps in the discount box and save yourself some money, and if you're buying Complement Plus, well, then it's Main Street Vegan with a plus sign, and uh, you can save some money because you know what? We want everybody who is vegan or looking at being vegan to be happy and healthy and strong and free. And we want to get out of this powerarchy thing that we're just learning about today from our wonderful guest, Dr. Melanie Joy. The book is called Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. The website is powerarchy.org, and you can also find Dr. Joy and all of her exciting current work with the Beyond Carnism moniker on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Beyond Carnism. And we will put all of this on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So, Dr. Melanie Joy, when we had to rush off to break, you finished with the word integrity. <laughs> you want to pick up on that? 
Sure. I was um, I was talking about um, our communication and the difference between relational uh, and non-relational communication um, and how when our process is healthy in and when we have um, when we're communicating in a way that's more relational or healthier, that means our process is healthier. And when our process is healthy, it reflects integrity. And it honors dignity and it leads to greater connection. And so it this means that the goal for our communication can't be just to be right or to win, but it really needs to be mutual understanding. Very often we we can forget when we're disagreeing about something in particular that underneath our disagreement, underneath the content that we're talking about is a relationship between people. And it's on that level where our attention needs to be if we really want to be um, be able to learn and understand. And so once we, when we're communicating, once we get to the point where we fully understand each other's position and we feel understood and we feel that we understand, then when we can start communicating about strategies to uh, make decisions to move forward so that each of our needs gets met enough. So let's, I, I like that and that's so kind. I think the base of so, so much of true justice is also true kindness. And I know people argue a lot. They say, no, we don't want to talk about compassion. We want to talk about justice. To me, there's not a big difference. Maybe um, you want to follow up on that. But I do want to move this into some of the points that are utterly fascinating in your book. Um, let's move a bit into this idea of privilege. You talk about three features of privilege. What are they? Well, privilege is an unfair advantage given to some and denied to others. If everybody has the same advantage, it's it's no longer a privilege. Um, and so people with privilege um, tend to take up space. When we have privilege, which is a, a, a form of power, right, we, we tend to take up space. And people with privilege typically don't recognize the privilege that they have. And they don't recognize when they're taking up space. So, for example, um, studies have shown, let me back up, we take up space verbally, physically, um, both verbally and physically, right? We often just think of taking up space as, you know, existing on the physical level, like, you know, I guess the kind of classic now example is like manspreading. Um, you know, a, a guy sitting on the subway, for example, with his legs wide apart, where the women, you know, sitting next to him are like squishing themselves up to make themselves smaller. Um, this is often done completely unconsciously, you know, that the man doesn't recognize that he's spilling into the woman's space and the woman doesn't necessarily recognize that she's shrinking herself. Um, but privileged people with privilege take up space and they take up space physically and also verbally. So there have been studies done, for instance, on um, in college classrooms of mixed gender college classrooms where um, when women spoke more than 25 percent of the time, they were perceived by both the men and the women um, of dominating the conversation. So it's very interesting. And we don't recognize when we're taking up space often when we're in a position of privilege. So um, privilege is typically invisible to those who have it. So 
For example, you probably notice as soon as somebody, like, you know, when somebody starts to stand too close to you, you can feel that immediately. Yes. But chances are, if you're doing the same thing to somebody else, you won't know that until they point it out to you. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one way that maybe listeners uh, can relate to, um, you know, to highlight how in, how privilege is often invisible to those who have it is to talk about human privilege, um, which is still, you know, as informed as we may be about speciesism, about carnism, you know, it's still so deeply embedded in our consciousness. We've been born into this powerarchy of speciesism so that, you know, our human privilege remains largely to invisible, invisible, even to the most informed and the best intention of us. So, you know, imagine that you're at your friend's house and visiting your friend and, and, um, your friend has a new kitten who's just adorable and who you really want to pet and pick up and, you know, say hello to, but the kitten is cowering in the corner and doesn't want to be touched. You know that you're trustworthy, but that kitten doesn't know that you're trustworthy you may still feel compelled to go over and take her and say, oh, it's okay, don't worry. Once I pet you, you'll calm down. Or, you know, that's what you get for being so cute or the things that we tend to do without realizing that that actually is you exercising your human privilege. Um, this kitten is afraid. Privilege, privilege, privilege causes us to cross others' boundaries without recognizing that we're boundary crossing in the first place. And um, the third aspect of privilege is that, um, you know, people with privilege, I should re reiterate, take up space. People with privilege typically don't see it when they have it. And the third aspect of privilege um, you had asked about is that um, privilege is not typically given up willingly. People become deeply defensive when their privilege is challenged. Um, some of the most rational and compassionate people will become very irrational and highly defensive as soon as you challenge their privilege, whether it's their white privilege or male privilege or, you know, what I call carnistic privilege, the privilege that um, people who uh, are not vegan um, feel uh, when they feel entitled to eat animal products. Um, I mean, this is, does not make us bad people when we defend our privilege or even having privilege. We all have certain forms of privilege and we all become defensive around it because that's the way privilege operates. That's the way powerarchy affects us psychologically. It causes us to defend anything that would actually help us evict it from our consciousness. So, you know, just as an example, when you're, talking to somebody who's not vegan about veganism, you might notice that they can often become very defensive and feel like you're taking away their quote unquote right to eat animals or their freedom of choice. You know, you probably have heard this before when you're not even actually advocating veganism. Somebody might say to you, you're just sharing information about it. Somebody might say to you, you know, just you make your choices. I'll make mine. I've heard that. <laughs> Five million times. Uh -huh. About that. So I, you have a, a wonderful quotation leading into um, one of your chapters. It's from an anonymous source. It says, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think this is really interesting because, you know, we see it and, and feel it. I've also in the past few years had a, just a couple of experiences in which I felt what power feels like. I'm thinking of um, 
the most recent was I, I went to a, a veg fest in Brooklyn and thought I had gotten tickets online, but evidently I didn't press the right button and my husband and I didn't have tickets. And the people who were there at the doors were saying, you know, too bad, <laughs> we're sold out, you're not getting in. And then I, I looked inside and I happened to see uh, Doc G, uh, Fred Beasley II from New York City Hip Hop is Green. He teaches for Main Street Vegan Academy. And I'm flailing my arms about and he noticed me and came out and I said, you know, they won't let us in. And he was very active, you know, as a, a pr presenter and, and uh, creator of, of this veg fest. So he took my husband and me kind of under his wing, and it reminded me of these old movies where you'd see somebody hand the mater d a bill and get a table when none existed before. We were taken under the wing of someone who had power in this particular space, and we were escorted in. And I have to tell you, Melanie, it felt like being lifted up uh, on, on some kind of breeze. And I haven't, and until recently in my life, really understood this thing about power. And we hear about people being power hungry and how much everybody wants more power. But in that experience and a couple of others like it, I kind of had this feeling. So what I want to ask you is, is this a human thing? Does everybody love that feeling? And if we do, or for those of us who do, what do we do about it? And you were saying, when you say love that feeling of having power. I loved that I knew somebody important who could give me something that I was otherwise being denied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the feeling is both probably, um, I mean, certainly we are, when we, when we're born into a powerarchical norm, this this normal normative way of being, where we're really conditioned to perceive power as being something either you have or you don't. Like you have, we we tend to, for example, feel more or less powerful based on how we measure up to others. And I think this is what you're describing. Um, you know, because if everybody, you're describing a form of privilege essentially. If everybody was being let in the way that you were, then you wouldn't feel powerful. It's only in comparison to the fact that other, when you compare it to the fact that other people were not, um, that you could feel uh, that kind of power or privilege that, that you experienced. And um, we do know that um, gaining power or certain types of power does tend to make people feel high, you know, give you some sort of a high, um, and we also know that we're very, very socialized to, to strive for this type of power. I mean, you look at, at just about every advertisement on TV. I mean, consumer culture is, is completely organized around socializing us to feel like we need to be, you know, more than, better than, more beautiful than, more successful than, more wealthy than, you know, et cetera, et cetera, others. So we really are very deeply socialized to um, to to strive for greater power, men even more so than women in some ways under patriarchy. Um, and at the same time, we also know, as I said earlier, that um, you know more and more studies are showing that we are hardwired to seek meaningful connection and to avoid the pain of disconnection. And the problem with 
striving for power over in this way, um, in, in various ways, is that it is, number one, it creates and, and reinforces different forms of injustice, certainly can. And number two, it creates connections between us. It creates, um, uh, it can create a sense of entitlement and also reflect a sense of entitlement. Um, one of the things that's most important for us to do if we really want to examine and um, you know reshape our relationship with power in general you know is to to work to become more self-reflective you know to ask ourselves to start noticing power is such an important aspect of life you know when we feel more or less powerful or empowered when we feel more or less worthy you know a sense of worth um, it's so fundamental to how we operate and how we move through the world. And yet most of us have not been given the opportunity or guidance um, to really learn about what power is, how it affects us and how we relate to it. We haven't really developed power literacy. So one thing that we, we can and I believe all need to do is to, number one, learn about, you know, become aware of powerarchy and the way that it shapes our perceptions of power and the way that we relate to power, the way that it conditions us to take power from others in order to feed our own need to feel more powerful and how in the end that ultimately harms all of us um, and become aware of how we feel in terms of our own sense of power in different situations in our lives and in particular how we feel in terms of our own sense of self-worth which is very connected to our sense of power, right? We, we know that we humans strive to feel that we are fundamentally worthy. We need to feel that we are fundamentally worthy. I mean, just think about your own experience. You know, when, when you feel shame, shame is the feeling of being less than or the feeling of being less worthy than others. And it's an incredibly destructive and debilitating emotion. It's so damaging to our sense of self. We are all so deeply defended against experiencing shame for, for good reasons. Chances are, you know, in your life, the best you, you feel in your life, I shouldn't say best, but maybe, you know, the most um, fulfilled times in your life when you reflect on them are times when you sent, felt a sense of your own dignity, that you felt fundamentally worthy in times that you were in meaningful connection with others. And so if you can, you know, if we can all start paying attention and self-reflecting, how do I feel right? How, how do I feel in terms of my self-worth right now? And then noticing what's happening around me right now that's impacting my sense of self-worth. What am I doing in order to help myself feel more worthy? So when we start to tune into our internal experience and develop self-awareness and self-awareness around our sense of power and worth, you know, we get a wealth of information, really important information about ourselves and about what kinds of relational experiences and behaviors um, feed us on a core level and which ones really harm us. This is also fascinating. I love your phrase, power illiteracy, because it's true. I mean, I, I think everybody knows some kind of definition of power, but you're talking about so many layers and nuances. I was interested when you talked about power over. 
And just thinking back to the VegFest experience, you know, my husband and I were the only people who had been too technological illiterate to get our tickets properly. If there had been a line of people who were not being let in and, and we had been somehow chosen above them or letting us in would mean other people didn't get in, I wouldn't have even gone in because I would have felt guilty. Like that, that's not right. You know, you're taking something from somebody else. So even though it didn't feel like power over, it still felt like I was being lifted by somebody else's status or, or, or being close to that status, which I think gets into what you're talking about, the self-worth and self-esteem. So some people have what looks like at least self-worth and self-esteem based on privilege that they just achieved by virtue of race, gender, accident of birth. So what do we do? How do you really build self-esteem? Whether you were born into privilege or whether you were not, how do you get the real kind? Well, yeah, and privilege does not, I mean, plenty of people are very privileged and they don't necessarily have self-worth. Self-worth is the feeling that you are you are fundamentally worthy as a being on this planet. You are no more nor less worthy than anybody else of being treated with respect. Um, now, this does not mean, you know, honoring people's dignity, you know, honoring people's worth does not mean not holding people accountable for problematic behaviors. I mean, obviously, we need to do that. We need to work towards social change. Um, it simply means we do so in a way that still honors their dignity. Neither, none of us is anything more nor less than the hard wiring, you know, the biology that we were born with and every single experience we've had throughout our lives. This is what has shaped us to who we are um, as individuals. Expecting anybody to be different from who and how they are is like expecting a tree that's been rained on, you know, not to be wet. So people can have a tremendous amount of privilege and still not feel worthy. And, and sometimes those are people who really feel the least worthy because when you feel fundamental worth, it's not about what you do and it's not about what you have. It's simply about who you are as a being. And, um, you know, if you think about, um, times in your life where you've been really successful and really proud of yourself. Maybe, you know, you've written a bunch of books, so maybe it's, you know, you've published another book or there's been some accomplishment that you're proud of. Underneath that accomplishment for many people um, is often a fear of what if I can't live up to this? What if I'm not good enough for this? You know, what if I wasn't able to write books? Would people still value and love me then? Sometimes when you have a lot of external successes, that's where you become, you become so identified with those successes. Um, and they're not who you are on a fundamental level, but you, your self-worth starts getting tied up with those. So, you know, building your sense of self-worth is we, we grow. Um, you know, feminist psychologists have, have been pointing out for, for decades now that, you know, we grow and develop not in, you know, isolation, of course, but in meaningful relationships with others. One of the best ways to help build your self-worth is to commit to practicing to having healthy relationships. Again, if you think about the relationships in your life that you consider to be healthy, they're probably relationships where you feel good about who you are in them, where you feel like it's easier for you to be your best self or your better self. 
And so the more we can cultivate relationships where we really do practice healthy relational behaviors, um, the more we can grow to be our better selves. It's almost like our relationships become the training ground for us to learn how to feel good about ourselves, to feel worthy, and also to behave in ways that are are healthy, that also feed our self-worth. We feel better about ourselves when we treat others better. And we often believe Many of us have been socialized to believe that you can't love others until you love yourself. Um, and this, I don't know where this idea came from, but it's kind of been accepted as a truism for many, many years. Uh, and I don't know that there's any data to actually support it. Um, many people have found instead that they learn to love themselves, to feel worthy through loving others. You know, sometimes you know, new parents will say, I never loved myself before I had this baby. And now I see what love really is. Um, or, you know, when you have a new relationship, you learn to love yourself through that. So our relationships um, and our communication can be the training ground on which we can practice these healthy relational behaviors. And that's the beauty. It's win-win. We grow as individuals as we feed healthy relationships in our lives. And, you know, ultimately, transforming power archy, which is non-relationality, is it really requires that we develop relational literacy, which is an understanding of an ability to practice healthy relationships. And you will help us do that. Your, your work is just Thank so you. important and it's it really is changing not only the animal rights movement, not only human animal uh, relationships, but how we see ourselves as human beings. So thank you so, so much, Dr. Melanie Joy. The book is Power Archy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression through for Social Transformation. Powerarchy.org. At Beyond Carnism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Beyond Carnism on YouTube. This woman is everywhere and she needs to be. Thank you so much for being in our movement. Thank you so much for being my friend. Thanks to everyone who listened and to Unity Online Radio for hosting our program in our eighth year. Can you believe it? Isn't that amazing? And to every single person hearing my voice, be happy, be healthy, be blessed, be vegan. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. 
If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.